You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this morning, and we pray that you will sustain us and encourage us, Lord, in the hope of the good news that's revealed in Jesus. And I, I thank you for uh, my friends who are here this morning. I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to what you would have to teach us from your word. And thank you again, O God, for revealing yourself to us in your name. And I pray that you'll give us wisdom and understanding as we press more into that today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hello to everybody. Uh, we are, we're in, in week five um, of our seven-week series. And, and we're spending the majority of our time in the Old Testament because um, it's better. Um, I'm, 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 I'm teasing Osvaldo. Um, and today, uh, what I'd like to do is sort of spend a little bit of time dealing with some of these other names that we find in the Old Testament. Like, so if you think about strategically what we've done over the past four weeks, uh, you know, we spent the first week talking about the significance of God revealing Himself salvifically in the name. Um, and the second week we talked about the importance of the name Elohim because Elohim is a, is a term to describe God that's used to, to, um, to describe God throughout the Old Testament. Um, we, we don't even get out of Genesis 1-1 without finding Elohim there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Recognizing that the term Elohim finds its presence in the Old Testament primarily in those places that emphasize God's, God's universal lordship. Um, God as creator, um, so that we recognize, again, Genesis 1-1, that the God that we're dealing with in creation is not merely a kind of provincial deity of that small little uh, nation-state right by the Mediterranean Sea that we now call Israel. Um, it's a recognition that the God of Israel, who's attached himself to those people, is, is the selfsame God who spoke the world into existence. And, and he did so in, in a way that's, that's not paralleled within the ancient Near Eastern world. I, I think this is, is fascinating. Uh, we, don't, we don't see God creating the world in a kind of cosmic struggle, wondering what the outcome might be. But actually, in the ease of his own power and strength, God speaks the world into existence by the effective power of his spirit. So again, we're not even out of Genesis 1, 1 to 3 without the Trinitarian character of God's being appearing to us to show how the world actually came to be. How, how do what, And this is the classic question that philosophers have asked forever, including someone like Heidegger in the last century. Big, big question, why is there something and not nothing? Right? And the answer that the Bible gives to that without any clearing of its throat is there is something and not nothing because God, as an act of His own kindness and redemptive largesse, in other words, there's nothing constraining, external to God's being that forces him to create the world. Um, and, and by the way, this is a hot theological topic to this day. Um, the, the relationship between God as creator and the world as creation is the created order necessary to the being of God. Does God need the created world for, for his own godness to come into some fuller kind of being? And, and the answer that the classic Christian tradition has made to that, to that question throughout time is no. God's not wrapped up in our categories of being 
and, and species and how we order our world with trees and plants and whatever. God, God transcends all of that. We're going to come back to that this morning as we look at some of these other names. But God transcends all of that. The reason why the world is is not because there was something external to God's being that required it to be, but it's here as an act of God's kindness and love. That, that's remarkable. Because when we think about the twin pillars that hold up Really, the God's movement toward humanity in the Bible, it's, it's the twin pillars of creation and redemption. These are, these are parallel tracks that, that mutually inform one another, both of them retaining their integrity. A doctrine of creation is important. But both of those train tracks of God's creation and His redemption, which if I can, I haven't thought about it this way, but if you think about how we look at train tracks going down the road, right? I mean, down the, the, the rail line, what, what happens to our, to our vision of, of these parallel lines as they extend in time? They, they, they merge into one. And I think that's, that's actually not a bad way of understanding the significance of creation on the front end of the Bible and the back end of the Bible, Revelation 21. I saw the new heavens, the new Jerusalem coming down, and God's dwelling place being with humanity, that there we see this sort of wonderful notion of redemption and creation becoming one thing in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, that, that's a kind of a beautiful image. Um, but what, 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 do, what, what do both of those, those parallel tracks tell us about the character of God? That the world is, and God's redeeming of the world, are both actions of His own self-giving love. There, there was nothing external to God's being that constrained Him to do that. He did it out of, an, out of an act of his own kindness and his own love and his desire to let the love that bound his own person together in the Trinity to spill over um, into the creation of the world and the, and the redemption of humanity within it. So now that, that's the significance of Elohim. And in the last two weeks, we've talked about what, what I guess technically we refer to as the tetragrammaton, the four letters, that, that yod, hey, vav, Hey, uh, Yahweh is the way in which we translate that, or Jehovah, and I'm, I'm actually quite happy with Jehovah, um, which is now the unique name that God has given to His re covenant relation with His people. Um, this is the name by which He's identified, and it's a name of self-giving. It's a name that's revealed on the far side. It's revealed both at the, at the burning bush, and it's also revealed on the far side of the golden calf encounter. So that's where we've taken us, because I think Elohim and, and Adonai or Yahweh, Jehovah, those are, those are the significant names that we see attached to the God who creates and redeems uh, in the Old Testament. And today, um, and I'm not going to cover everything, I mean, obviously we can, but today is, is a little bit like before we leave the Old Testament and go into the New Testament to talk about next week the significance of the name Jesus Christ, and then in the final week, the significance of naming God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where we're going to end this whole series. Um, but before we leave the Old Testament for greener pastures, um, I, I feel like this is you know Christmas Eve when you put the bike together for the kids. Um, and there's the bike. And all of a sudden, you've got all these bag of bolts that you know like they should be on there somewhere. Uh, but you know, so that this is this is the bag of bolts, right? That we have. That I think we we just want to. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give this to you in kind of rapid fire this morning, <laughs> given our given our time. So here here are a few other names that we find in the Old Testament. The first one is the name El Elyon. I'll write some of these up here because. Um, can you? Oop. What's this thing? Pull this around. So this is. 
um, El Elyon. And you'll notice something about this term right here, El. That, that's just a diminutive form, a smaller form of Elohim, right? So it's another way of saying God. And then you have El, and Elyon is a term that I guess would probably best translate as Most High, right? So you have the Most High God here. Um, I think this might be of some interest to you, but when you begin to read literature from the surrounding religious and mythic literature of, of the various Canaanite religions, all right, so those religious structures that were sort of surrounding Israel, you'll, you'll come um, and begin to read the literature of the Phoenicians, for example, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I, my heritage is, is Lebanese. Um, and so, which kind of traces back through the through the Phoenicians, um, uh, you you will find this language of El Elyon. Um, you'll also find language with, with the term that will come to later, uh, Shaddai, um, El Shaddai. Uh, the, the, these were, in other words, these were terms that were common to the religious culture of the day. Um, and by the way, there were some terms that would have been common to the religious culture of the day that in time became forbidden. I mean, you just wouldn't use this in any way to describe Israel's God. One of those is obviously Baal, Baal. You're not going to find anywhere in, in the Bible where the, the term Baal, which can frankly simply be translated as Lord. It can be translated that way. Um, that, 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 that's too entrenched in the religious dynamics and, and um, idolatrous instincts of the northern kingdom especially, to ever use that term to talk about Israel's God. But I think it's fair enough to say that El El Elyon was probably a term that was used to describe the great God, the most high God, the God of all gods, that would have been common to, to some of the other religions of the day. I, I think this is interesting to my mind because it, it lends itself... Um, I'm thinking a little bit out loud here, but it, it lends itself to what some apologists would call um, using borrowed capital. Right? Um, in other words, you're, you're, you're taking things that are common to the cultural milieu of your day, and you are receiving them, that, that language, you're receiving it into the life of the churches or Israel's own religious speak, but doing so in such a way that fuses the substance of what that term is with your own um, understanding of God's revealed character theologically in Scripture or the, or the biblical tradition. So you'll take something like El Elyon in the Bible, the Most High One, and when you find this language, and we'll see where it shows up in the Bible, but the use of it is not to say, oh, by the way, our God, your God. So in other words, it's not a pluralistic instinct that's driving the use of a term like El Elyon. It's a, it's a kind of borrowed capital to say, I know, like, like Paul on Mars Hill, you're worshiping this sort of unknown God. Uh, let, let me tell you who he is so that you have some clarity about that. Because there is an El Elyon. There is a Most High God. But that Most High God has revealed himself in a very specific way as our Creator and Redeemer and has attached himself specifically to the covenant and laws and relationships with his people Israel. So that, that, that's, I think that's interesting. It's worth sort of reflecting on the ways in which we do that, even in how, how we talk. Paul, by the way, was a master of this. Um, have you heard this term before? We all have. Reconciliation, right? Um, Paul's the only, I think he's the only one, you can correct me on this, Oswaldo, but I think he's the only one in the New Testament to use that, that Greek term, katalasso, reconciliation. Um, and yet, the way that Paul uses the term reconciliation, as I've read this, 
is not common with the culture. He's borrowed a term, he's borrowing capital, um, but for someone to reconcile themselves, say in the first century world, if I had offended somebody, I as the offending party would have to, for reconciliation to happen, I as the offending party would have to reconcile myself to the one that I offended. And Paul takes that in terms of the gospel and flips it completely in ways that would have not been familiar. Because we are the ones who are the offending party with our God, given our sin. And yet it's God who in Christ has, you know this language out of 2 Corinthians, reconciled us to Him. That's not a common way of understanding how also, uh, how reconciliation happens. Now I think this is similar to what's going on here. There, there's terminology that's, that's, that's part of the ancient Near Eastern cultural milieu of the, of the day that's being borrowed and used, um, that's being used by in, in Israel's traditions. Now, this name here, if you have Bibles, I want you to see this. This name here is specifically associated in Genesis chapter 14 with Melchizedek, who is a strange figure. So you know the story about Melchizedek. Abram, Abram just rescued Lot one more time. And, and then he returns from this, the, this battle. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of, of Shava, that is the king's valley. And there, and here we go, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is to Abraham. He was a priest of, and we'll just read it this way, he was a priest of El Elyon, God Most High. So what you're seeing here is someone, and, and the whole world before Abraham, the, the, the religious world before Abraham, the religious world before Moses, leaves all kinds of questions that the Bible doesn't answer for us. So if you're if you're you're about to get frustrated if you need to kind of connect dots because I don't think we have enough data to connect dots. But here's Melchizedek who without any reservation in his presentation of the Bible, he is presented positively. Psalm 110. Was that our reading today? And was that our psalm that we did? I was listening. I just want you to know. I was, I was testing <laughs> I was testing you. I was testing you. Um, um, Psalm 110, you have a psalm there that's, by the way, the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament that talks about um, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then you find that appellation used to describe, especially throughout the logic of the book of Hebrews, you are a priest forever according to Melchizedek. And that, by the way, that raises all kinds of fascinating questions, right? What does it mean to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? It's not the Aaronic priesthood that's linked to the temple cult. It's the, it's the, it's the order of Melchizedek. And I think what Melchizedek represents, especially Christologically, is the conjoining of both priest and king. You don't see that anywhere else. I think we see a little hint of it when David goes and asks for the showbread um, when, he, when he and his men are hungry, which is unique uh, bread that's to be eaten by the priest alone, and the priest hands it over to him, and there's no negative account given of what David's doing. David's being, for lack of a better term, Melchizedekian there, right? 
Um, he's acting in accord with both the kind of function as a priest and a king. And all of that, in some sense, is figuratively foreshadowing for us the significance of Christ, the book of Hebrews, who is both king and priest at the same time. Um, but where does Melchizedek come from? Like The same thing with, with um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. I mean, Jethro and the Midianites, Jethro was a priest. And a priest to Elohim, to the God. To God. Um, did he know Tetragrammaton, yod heh Bob? Did he know Yahweh Adonai? We don't know. I think we have probably have every reason to assume that he probably didn't know that those, those names. But in their moment, in the redemptive economy of God's grace, they were operating in accord with what had been revealed to them, with what they knew. That's not the fullness of what we know, but they were operating in accord with the worship of the Creator God of the universe. And in doing so, they were operating in faithfulness to what God had given them. I think that's, I know this is not a model for us in our moment in time redemptively, but it, it does raise all kinds of questions about, well, who was Melchizedek? What did the priesthood look like? What was involved in his religious expression? What does it mean that he comes here and blesses Abraham? And that is a significant moment in Abraham's own journey. Lots of questions raised. Who was he? Like, who's Enoch? Where'd he come from? And where did he go, right? Um, so lots of questions that are raised. But Melchizedek here is a priest to El Elyon, to the God Most High. And by the way, El Elyon is a term that begins to make its presence known really throughout the Psalms. The Psalms use this quite a bit in, in worship of Israel's God. So when you begin to wrap all these things together, um, what Melchizedek knew about Israel's God I don't think we can answer that very clearly, what Melchizedek actually knew. But I think what we know, what we know, and what Israel knew about Melchizedek's worship of El Elyon is a recognition that Melchizedek, wittingly or unwittingly, was worshiping Adonai. He was worshiping Tetragrammaton. He was worshiping Israel's God, El Elyon. And that's why this phrase continues to kind of make its presence known. So what does El Elyon emphasized. It emphasizes God's exaltation. It's a metaphor here that speaks to the significance of God's transcendence. He's incomparable to any other being. In fact, God transcends the whole category of being. He doesn't operate in accord with those the, the, the terms of how we order and conceive of reality. Um, uh, when you think about the way in which the book of Genesis, for example, shows God's transcendence in the Tower of Babel. I love this. And of course, this is all metaphorical here, but I think it's, it gets at something. Here, here's humanity doing its best to build some sort of ziggurat um, structure to, to make, and remember the turn of phrase in Genesis 11, to make a name for themselves. Um, and and uh, so this is this is an activity of at uh, least the way in which Genesis presents this an activity of human hubris and pride. And how does God respond? I just love this. God had to come down to look around to see what was going on. Right. In other words, God's transcendence has to come down to peek around to see humanity at its best, trying to make itself great. And so the, the, the juxtaposition of humanity working hard to build something to make a name and God having to come down and say, what's all the fuss going on down here, right? Is, I think, an indication of, again, El Elyon. He, he's transcendent. Um, he's other. 
Um, the categories that we use analogically to speak about God, whether it's metaphors like fatherhood, God is a lion, God is a rock, we recognize that all of those terms and metaphors that we use to describe God are true and real. They help us understand Him, but never in a way that our understanding can capture the very essence and being of God. He's transcendent to all of that. Um, he's beyond the capacities of our mind. Who has ever, I mean, to use the language of Job, who has ever been his counselor? Who's ever gotten into a quid pro quo with God? Who's, this is the response. Of, I mean, Job gets a kind of exhibit A of, God's tra- of, of God as El Elyon. Okay? Um, so, this, this name emphasizes God's transcendence. It also emphasizes God's control his sovereignty, and and his authority. Okay, can we do another name real fast? Oh yeah, we got time. Here's the next one. And for you Michael Card fans in the room, you can't help but start humming a little tune here. Any of you know who that is? Or Amy Grant, whoever. Sorry, yeah, Amy Grant. (laughs) Um, Can I tell you a funny Amy No, no, that'll take me off. I won't do it. No, 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 I won't do it. Um, El Shaddai. El Elyon and El Shaddai in some sense emphasize the the same feature of God's character. Um, This is probably best translated as God Almighty. For those of you who are familiar with um, iconography from uh, sort of the Byzantine period or the the Greek um, Orthodox tradition, you can go to the Greek festival and you've probably seen it just this weekend. Um, you'll see pictures of Jesus Christ exalted on the throne with his hand, a scepter in one hand and, 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 and over his hand over a sphere with his other hand. And, and you'll see sort of Greek terms there that say pantokrator, um, almighty one. You know, so this term about El Shaddai as the almighty one, God is almighty, um, is, is, is a term that's been received as well within Christian theology and especially Christian iconography to express um, the sovereignty of Jesus as now ruler and Lord over all creation. Think about Colossians 1. He is both the creator and the sustainer and the preserver of all reality. Um, the, 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 uh, to put it in very sort of crass terms, the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico don't swallow over Florida um, because Jesus is Ponto Crator. I mean, that's, 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 that's the logic, I think, that we have with uh, Jesus as the one who holds in, in all things together um, in the power of his, own, of his own person. So El Shaddai, God is Almighty One, is a term that, that actually isn't as replete within the Old Testament as El Elyon is. El Elyon sort of gets received within um, the psalmic uh, worshiping poetic traditions of Israel in ways that El Shaddai does not. El Shaddai, we find primarily centered on the Abrahamic covenant. So, for example, you have um, Genesis chapter 17, or here, verses 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and you will be blameless. And that is, I am El Shaddai. I'm the Almighty One. Now, we've already read Exodus 6.2 that says, I made myself known to the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as El Shaddai, I'm the Almighty One. Um, El Shaddai doesn't appear very much within uh, the Psalms. As a matter of fact, I don't think it appears in the Psalms at all, like El Elyon does appear in the Psalms. 
Um, it makes its appearance, I think, one time in the book of Numbers, maybe one time in the book of Deuteronomy. But it, it's not as prevalent a name, despite, you know, Amy Grant, it's not as prevalent a name as El Elyon is um, that we find in the Old Testament. El Shaddai, El Mighty One. But it does appear in one book in particular. Um, it appears throughout the book of Job. Um, and that's interesting, I think, because Job, and this is, this is the kind of thing that scholars debate, and this is one of the reasons why you don't, probably don't want to be one. Um, <laughs> but scholars will debate things like, is Job really an old book, or did someone write it to make it look really old? Um, and you know, and be, because because it, it, it's almost as if the book of Job strains to look old, um, and and you'll have terms like El Shaddai, which again is a is, a, is an appellation of God that's used especially in pre-Mosaic covenant times. Abraham and Job are these figures that are outside the particularity of the Mosaic administration. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that Paul. Um, so frequently will appeal to Abraham as someone whose faith was ju- justified him, not his attendance to the law, because Abraham wasn't in, operating in accord with Torah as received in the Mosaic administration. Okay, so so you 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 have Job, which is a kind of whether it's cons- you know designed to be old or actually is old. I tend to think it probably is rather old. Um, you, that that uh, that emphasizes what life looks like outside of the covenant with Israel, and, and, and lots, of, lots of questions raised about this. But we can set that to the side and at least lean somewhat heavily into what I think Job is after. Um, and Job is a complicated book. Um, it's a book that can keep us up at night. Um, it's, it's a book that, um, that, frankly, in a kind of surprising way, I think we all step back and go, my goodness, I'm, su- I'm, I'm really surprised that's in the Bible, at least in the way in which it is. I mean, how, does, how does Job 1 start? With no doubt who who the, who God is, He is El Shaddai, He is the Almighty One. Then you have the sons of God who come, to the, the, these divine beings that come and present themselves to the to the Lord to El Shaddai on His throne, and they have to bring some account of what they're doing. Now, and, and you, you re, we, we've re, we you all know Job. You've done Bible studies on Job, but when you step back and look at it, like, and you see it a second time, like, what, what's going on again? You mean to say, like, Nimrod is having to come and present himself to um, El Shaddai? Um, and, uh, and Baal is coming to... I mean, what, what's the, the, the deal here? A lot that we don't know, but whatever material... The principalities and powers that Paul talks about in his letters, they're having to come in the book of Job and give a report to God. This is what's been going on in Babylon. Nimrod, right? Uh, Ishtar shows up. This is what's been going on. Whatever's happening, they have to give an account. And then, of course, the Satan appears, the accuser, and he says, um, and, and, and this is the hard part of Job. This is the part that can keep me up at night, too. The Satan, Satan, whoever this figure is, the accusing one, he doesn't bring Job's name up. This is the part of the book that always keeps me up at night. God brings it up. And it's like, have you considered my servant Job? And, and, and it's almost like you can hear the Satan saying, well, no, I haven't, but let's talk about that. Um, and the Satan says to, to, to God on the throne, well, you know, he's only righteous the way in which he's righteous because you just keep pouring your blessings out on him. I mean, it's like easy street for this guy. Um, start taking things away from him and let's see what happens. And so that's what, and of course, you know how the story unfolds in Job. I mean, it's, it's a raucous ride. 
But there's another aspect of Job too that I think we often forget, and that's the role that wisdom plays in the whole book as it unfolds. Because here you have Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, the three friends who appear on the scene, and what what, what do they represent? They they really represent the best of human wisdom trying to make sense of the cataclysmic events of humanity. And that's maybe part of the book, too, that's bothered you as you've read in the past. This bothered me when I was young. I can remember this bothering me. Reading things that Bildad had said or Zophar had said and thinking, that doesn't sound so bad. In fact, this is the part that might get me in trouble this morning, but I'll go and say it. In fact, there are Bible verses that support some of the things they say. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed out begging bread. All right? So if you're having to beg for bread, Job, and something's, these cataclysmic events have happened in your life, you, you must have done something to really offend the deity. Right? Um, and you're thinking, oh my goodness. I mean, so all this, so what, what do we have here? We have an example in the book of Job. And think where Job is placed, right? Psalms, Proverbs, then you have Ecclesiastes and Job. So you have Ecclesiastes and Job in the canon to let you know that human wisdom has a valuable place and role to play in human living. What does it mean to live life well and skillfully under the sun? But at the same time, we recognize that wisdom and the best of our, of our wise achievements are never good enough to take the place of Pantocrator, of El Shaddai, the one who understands and providentially is guiding all things toward his own end. Uh, if I can quote William Cooper in one of the best hymns ever written, you know, God moves in a mysterious way. God is his own interpreter. That's William Cooper saying, when you begin to interpret the events of providence according to your own narrative, I've had some of this happen recently. I prowl this, da da da. It's like, whoop, that's not, that ain't what I thought it was going to be. Because when you become your own interpreter of God's providential events, you've got to be very careful about making that kind of summative narrative view. And that's what Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz were doing. Doing the best of wisdom that they could for Solomon. And yet, that it just wasn't right. And here's Job protesting the whole time. So what's the answer that we have with the limits of human wisdom in light of the reality of human suffering and our own inability to escape the reality of, of what it means to be human? What, what's the object lesson that, Jonah, that Job gets in the end of the book? He gets a one-on-one -on -one encounter with El Shaddai. He gets a one-on-one -on -one encounter with God Himself. And he gets to see His power unveiled. And God gets into this kind of courtroom scene because Job, if you remember the whole book, he's been asking for a moment in court. I want my moment in court to present my case not to you three. You're a disaster. You three are helping me none. I want my moment in court to present my case to God Himself. And he gets it. I mean, God gives him his moment in court. Um, Job, Job doesn't say anything when he gets his moment. Um, but he gets his moment in court, and God, God takes center stage. Where, 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 and this is the question, right? This is the El Shaddai question. Where were you, Job, when I made the foundations of the earth? You know, where, where, you've heard about Behemoth and Leviathan. Those are those sea creatures that keep you up at night. Megalodon or something like that. You heard about them? If you touched one of those creatures, Job, you would never forget it. And I play catch with them. All right. Now that's the. So what? What does Job get? He gets um, El Shaddai. And and honestly, I think if we are, um, if we reveal how we really engage a book like Job, I think it's fair enough to say that there's a part of us we might not articulate. It, there's a part of us that says that's really not very feeling of God there at the end. 
Um, in fact, God's a little sarcastic with Job. Um, he's, it, it just doesn't seem, if I can put it in our terms, it doesn't seem like God's being very pastoral with Job. Right? Um, and, and the truth is, I actually, I, and, I, and I don't want to deny the sting of some of that, um, but I think God's being profoundly pastoral in this sense. What he's leaving Job with is, are you going to believe that I'm transcendent? Are you going to believe that I'm El Shaddai? Are you going to believe that I can put together the pieces in ways that you can never do? You just can't do it. And I'm the one, think about the seventh day of creation, right? Um, evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. Then we get to the seventh day of creation. What do we have? Just morning, right? It's God's seventh day. There's no evening. It means that God's sovereignty is moving the created order toward an ultimate end. And from the seventh day of God's created of, of creation, God oversees providentially and redemptively His whole creation toward His own end. And you don't get to be God's counselor in that, Job. Nor do you get to understand all the messy details that are involved in God's movement toward that eschatological end. But what you do get, Job, is this. You get a big picture of me. And the question is, Job, are you going to believe that I'm El Shaddai or not? Are you going to trust me or not? And of course, we see the sort of beautiful un unfolding of the, of, the, of the story as it comes to an end. So El Elyon, El Shaddai, both of these terms describe for us the character of God's transcendence. And I'm conscious of the time, and I wanted to make sure to emphasize this, and I'll say a few more names real fast to you, but, but I think this is really important because it dawned on me thinking about the way in which these names come to us. Elohim. El Shaddai, El Elyon, emphasizing God as creator and transcendent and other. Whatever grand thoughts, and I still have a little bit of Anselm in me, so I like this. Whatever grand thoughts you can think about God, He's more. He's more. You cannot, your, your, your imagination does not have the capacity to engage the reality of God's transcendence and His, for lack of a better term, bigness. Right? You can't. And yet, Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, who is the self-same God, the transcendent one, Elohim, has given himself in relation to his people in the complicated dynamic of our lived existence before him. He is both tr transcendent and relational. He is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. In other words, that doesn't, tr he's not, he's not schizophrenic in his being, like I'm gonna be real big right now, and then I'm gonna be close to you now. It's within the whole context of the singularity of God's being to be both transcendent and relational with humanity at the same time. And I, th and I, and I, maybe this is how you, I think the necessary outcome of that is, that's really scary, and that's really comforting. Be and it's both. And, and, it, and those things are meant to be held together. Really scary. Really fearful and extremely comforting, um, both at the same time. Well, let me give you just, uh, what's the time? <laughs> it's sitting. I'm going to toss these out to you. Three more. And these are terms that are actually now used to modify um, Jehovah. So here's just a few of them quickly for you. One is, uh, you've seen it a lot, Jehovah Zabaot, the Lord of hosts. Um, 1 Samuel 17 and that was one of the best features for me of being in Israel in January. I got really, you know, I told you I went in really skeptically about this whole thing. But boy, by the third day, I was all in. 
buying, you know, little wood carvings everywhere. I mean, it's horrible. Uh, um, yeah, you just start, yeah, I'll take one of those coins. Sure. I'll, 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 um, but standing up and, wa- and seeing the Valley of Elah, loved it. And having a really first-rate guide let, kind of give you a sense of, you know, here you have the, the, the Philistines were encamped over on that ridge right there, and the Israelites were encamped right over there, and without doubt the scene of the battle was going to be right here within this valley. And, and we were up on a kind of on a ridge here looking out over this. I was, and I was, I mean, I just thought this was, this was great. It was fantastic. Um, and what is it that David yells at the hosts of the Philistine armies when he comes to them? He says, the God, the Lord Zabaoth will give us the victory. It's an understanding, again, that finds itself throughout the book of Isaiah, throughout Exodus. It's really, this, is, this is a red thread throughout the whole of the Old Testament, that God is a warrior um, who fights on behalf of his people. He fights for them. He goes to arms for them. Um, think about Elisha and his servant being surrounded by the armies. right? And uh, I love this. I mean, as a kid, this was a scene that I can still remember grabbing my imagination. And, uh, and the servant of Elisha is beside himself with fear, looking out of the army that's surrounding their dwelling. And Elisha prays and says, Oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And what does he see? He sees the, the armies that the Lord is in charge of, these, this supernatural army, an angelic army, which, again, we don't think in the... We're, very, we're way more materialist than we know. I am too. Um, but here, this Lord of hosts, it, it, it um, elicits from us this deep sense, I think, of the fact that God, in His El Elyon status as El Shaddai and Elohim, um, is commander over, over the whole host of the armies of heaven. And when He unleashes those armies toward their end, He does so with no one to stand in His way. That, that's, that's, that's the force, I think, of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Uh, here's another one for you. Um, Jehovah Jireh. Uh, this is a term I, I love that we had. Uh, there is a balm in Gilead saying for us in church today. It's so beautiful. Um, I had to remind my, my uh, set, uh, nine-year-old son who was sitting next to me that it's B-A-L-M, not B-O-M-B. That's a very different kind of reading you know, <laughs> you know, on this. <laughs> I wrote for him. I said, balm. That's like this, not bomb. You know. Um, <laughs> Um, but there's there's something about those spirituals um, that understood uh, the, the significance of this name right here, uh, Jehovah Jireh, which we often translate as what the Lord will provide. And of course, that comes specifically out of the scene in Genesis 22, where Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, and Isaac asked that very leading question. I see we're missing something here. Dad got sticks, fire, even got a knife. Um, where's, the, where's the sacrifice and what's, what's the answer? Um, Jehovah Jireh. Adonai Yira. Um, the, 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 just for your own knowledge's sake, the, the term, the lexical term is actually from Ra'ah, which means to see. I, I actually like the translation a little bit better. The Lord will see to it. He's, he's going to oversee these things toward its own end. Which is, again, an act of faith, isn't it? I don't know what the end is. I don't know how all this is going to turn out. I mean, there is that statement that Abraham made earlier where he said, me and the, the, lad, the lad and I will go and we will return to you. I mean, that one can read that as an implicit statement of faith that Abraham understanding in some way God's going to have to intervene here or do something. But Abraham has no idea what the script is going to be. He's entering into, I mean, and just think about the way in which this story, the Akadah of Genesis 22, has fueled 
the imagination of the, of the Western mind for so long, Soren Kierkegaard, fear and trembling, as a whole reflection on the ethical significance of what happens in Genesis 22. Um, th- th- I mean, this is, this is a horrific scene. And Abraham is about to go and offer his son Isaac on, on an altar to the point that the knife is raised. And even in the raising of the knife, that itself is an attestation of Abraham's belief that the Lord will see to it. In one way or another, God has made a promise. And His promise is irrevocable. God cannot change His promises because He cannot change His being. He is. And if that's true, then I have no idea what's going on here, but the Lord will see to it. He, he will provide. He, he will make a way. Where there In that old 90s CCM song, where there seems to be no way. Um, so I, I just, you know, and there's more, I had a few other names. It was Yahweh Zadek Nu, which means the Lord, our righteousness. But let me just leave you with Jehovah Jireh today. Um, because I do think that the Lord will provide, the Lord will see to it. Register somewhere near the center of what Israel's life before God um, looked like as an act of faith. God has made promises to us. He's made promises to us that are in accord with His being and His love, His own electing grace. And God will see to it that it makes, that it goes to the end that God has it to go to, even if in the moment we can't sort all of that out. And I imagine, I see the gray hairs in here, and I'm halfway to gray hair, I guess, now. Um, but I, I think, you know, a lot of you and me, we've lived long enough to know that our ability to sort it out decreases as we age, right? Um, it's like, I thought, you know, um, you know the old line, like the, the, the 13-year-old who then turns 18, he said, I never knew that my dad knew so much, you know, or he's learned so much over the past five years. I, like, I mean, we, we grow in our ability to discern our own inability to make sense of all the competing things that are going on in our lives and the world around us. And so what are we left with? We're left with this future-leaning hope. The Lord will see to it. He's made promises. He will make all things new. How's that going to happen? We'll let Him work that out in His own purposes and in His own way. So Lord, send us off with Your blessings. Uh, Thank You for Your name. Uh, Thank You, Lord, that we can put our hope in Your promises and, and in the fact that You're not just governing our individual lives, but the whole warp and woof of history to your own um, eschatological ends for the sake of your glory and the advancement and the establishment of your kingdom. Um, Help us to believe that you are the one who will see to it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.